Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're talking with Ace Eddie winning editor, James Wilcox, ACE, about the Ron Howard film, 13 Lives. James won his Ace Eddie for the pilot episode of the Genius series, Einstein. I last spoke with James when he edited Hillbilly Elegy, which was also for Ron Howard. He also worked on the Aretha Franklin season of Genius, as well as TV including Filthy Rich, Hand of God, Roots, Hawaii Five-O, CSI Miami, Reno 911, Everybody Hates Chris, and My Wife and Kids. Before we hop into our discussion with James, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free No Limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to aotc.borisfx.com slash art-of-the-cut. <laughs> that site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmark, hopefully so I don't have to say it again. <laughs> and now my discussion with James Wilcox, ACE. I've been waiting to talk to you for two years, I think. I know the pandemic and then work schedules and life has all gotten in the way, but here we are. Dan Hanley and Mike Hill edited Ron's movies for decades. Why don't you explain how you came to be in the driver's seat here for these special films with him? Ron and I met back in 2017. And um, Ron and Dan Hanley, at that time, Mike Hill had already retired. And Dan was just kind of working on the movies by himself. And Ron has always worked with that trio, you know, or the, as a trio, rather. And we were about to start Genius. And the idea was that Dan would start Genius and he would have a second editor since Mike was retired. I went in, I interviewed for the job, sat with Dan, sat with some producers from Imagine, sat with the showrunner of, of Genius, and they agreed to hire me. So we were all set to go. I get a call. Labor Day weekend, and Dan is explaining to me that he knows Ron shoots a lot. And nobody knew what that meant more than him. And uh, I I was used to directors who shot a lot. But once I got the job, 
I realized what Dan was talking about. <laughs> a lot was in all caps. And so he tells me that Labor Day weekend that he's really sorry, but I'm handing it off to you, which he thought was going to be a really daunting task. But, you know, I was working in television and any pilot that I did, I was always doing it by myself anyways. And I thought, okay, well, A, won an honor because he feels comfortable enough to hand over the torch to me to work with Ron. And they had discussed it. And so there we were. And so Ron was off in Prague shooting Genius. And I was starting to send him cuts back and forth of scenes so we could get a dialogue going and so that he could understand what my approach to the material was and what he was looking for and if I was hitting all the beats. And he sent me back within the first two days of cuts, he sent me back the most positive feedback that I ever could have gotten. And so it was really encouraging to just kind of keep going and doing what I was doing. And it gave me reasons why he was so effusive about it. It was performance choices. It was cutting it like a movie. And so um, I think that was a big sigh of relief for him that I was cutting it like, and that's one of the things he actually explicitly said, which was you're cutting it like a movie. And that's how I saw the material anyways. You could see it was directed that way and I didn't want to be intrusive. And so I've been really good with performances just about my whole career. So he immediately recognized, oh yeah, he's using the best and he's got a great pace for when and where we need things paced up and where things need to play out. And letting the camera do its thing and letting him as the great director he is, see his work unfold. And then after that, he left to go do a million other things, ultimately solo. And he kind of deputized me when he left Genius to say, just make sure that the rhythm and pace and the style and everything like that is in place for the remaining episodes. So I thought that was a really great vote of confidence as he left that he was like, okay, this is our baby. And by the way, on that pilot, we had no notes, Mm. which is unheard of. We didn't have a single note and it ran longer than every other episode. It was like a one hour pilot. And uh, uh, so, yeah, with that, he deputized me to just go and oversee the rest of it. Had a great first season. The show ended up with Ron being nominated for an Emmy as a director and several other department heads and the actors getting all nominated. And and I ultimately in 2018 won the Eddie for that work on the pilot. Well and deserved. So that began. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was that was really a proud moment because I was a little in the dumps um, after not even getting a uh, a nomination for an Emmy. I just felt like, wow, what did I do wrong here? I guess people thought that Ron, his material is so great. All you have to do is cut the slates <laughs> off. And there you go. You got a great. You had a great project. Well, the Ace Eddies, you know, your peers obviously love you. So uh, that's that's high praise from from all of the, your colleagues and and fellow professionals in the business. That was extremely gratifying because it was so unexpected. And I actually backed into entering the Eddies because I was on another job and ran into an Ace member. At the time, I wasn't in ACE, and she said, because I was kind of complaining to her, be honest with you, about <laughs> not <laughs> not getting an, even an Emmy nomination. And she goes, well, why don't you enter, enter it into the Eddies? As a matter of fact, I'll submit it, and it'll, it'll be free. Don't worry about anything. And she did, the studio did, and eventually, yes, I won. So it was an incredible night, that night of winning the Eddie. And then from then, 
then on, I think it was the beginning of our relationship because Ron needed an editor. And you know, the bond between a director and an editor is mm -hmm. so precious. Then he went on to do solo and he took over for the other two directors who had left the project. And at the time, I think Pietro Scalia was on it and Chris Levinson was on it. And, you know, I just wanted to stay in touch with him because I just love working with him. I mean, he is like no director, no other person that I've ever worked with who understands what I bring to the table and gives me the freedom to do it. So I called him up and I just said, you know, maybe arrogantly, I'd love to work on solo as well. If you need a third <laughs> pair of hands or a third editor, I'm happy to do whatever. You know, I'll cut small scenes, action scenes, whatever you need. If, you, if there's ever a spillover, please call me. And, um, and it was kind of like well down the road. And he, and he said to me, next time, next time. And I didn't know if he was like next time kind of shining me on or next time like for real. And sure enough, when Hillbilly Elegy came around, he gave me a call. And we talked for about an hour and a half about a lot of things, about my approach to the material after I read the script. I had read the book in preparation for our interview. And, um, and I told him, look, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and this story is taking place in Virginia and, and West Virginia and Kentucky. I understand the region, and I'm willing to do whatever research is necessary to bring as authentic of an approach to the story as possible. He liked that. So then he asked me about if we needed to bring on a second editor, would I be okay with that? Totally okay with that, because I know you're used to working in this triangle-type teamwork. What about if you need to go to New York? Is that okay? I'm like, New York? Are you kidding me? Done. There's nothing that you said here that would be any kind of deal breaker for me. So there we went. Uh, about a month or two later, I was in New York and cutting Hillbilly Elegy while he was in Ohio and various parts of Kentucky and Connecticut shooting the film. Well, I want to get to 13 uh, Lives. And um, there's some really interesting stuff with this movie, uh, as, uh, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> there's some really interesting editing challenges and, and ideas here. One of the first ones I, I thought of as I was watching the film was the setup needed, I don't know if it needed to be very quick, but it was very quick. Like to get them to that opening disaster that starts the whole film off is, is quick. Was it longer? Did you compress it like so often people do in act one? We started off with a script that had lots of, of detail in it, lots and lots of detail. And within the detail, it started to reveal itself as we had the whole cut together, which eventually turned out to be close to five hours because of the long dive sequences that I was showing Ron what his options were, then picking the best material dramatically for the underwater storytelling. So once we started to identify through screenings and just cutting together, we could see the redundancy. So we wanted to kind of get out of the gate as quick as possible. The idea was, why don't we establish them as a soccer team, the day it is, the timeline, and have them understand, have the audience understand the reason they went to the cave, which was part of this birthday celebration. They had a little time to kill. They go to the cave, very normal thing for young teenagers to do in Thailand, in that particular area. They've done it many times before. So it wasn't any kind of bad choice or stupid choice or anything like that. And the monsoon season arrived early that year. Mm -hmm. And that's what the hitch was, that it wasn't forecast at all. And they were doing a very normal Thai boys soccer team before the birthday party thing. And, um, and they go in there and they get trapped. So for me, my particular style and patience with this whole film because of its length was, you know, after a while, I discovered that a journalistic approach was probably going to be best for the film. And so that is just 
hit the sequences, hit the scenes for what the value they are and move as quick as possible. And a brilliant idea from one of our producers, Karen Lunder, we had the main title up front, but then that set it up a little bit as a movie. So we decided to, she goes, why don't you just pull the main title and we'll do it on the back end? which I thought turned out to be a brilliant decision because it keeps the momentum going and keeps the timeline urgent. And then it doesn't feel like here's a movie, which we were trying our very best from production to the finishing of the movie to never have it feel like a movie, to have it feel in its, in its own DNA. It kind of felt like a documentary in parts of it. The idea is that there's so much story to tell here with so many layers and moving storylines and timelines and geography and, and tracking the boys and the parents and the military operation of it all and the teams that are being formed for the rescue and so many things in the Thai language of it all, so many things going on. We thought it was just important to get out of the gate and get going because there's so much story to tell there with this whole you know 18-day ordeal. And one of the things I loved was that the opening tension as the rain starts to come because everybody knows, you know, it's kind of been laid out. This is the problem is this rain and you get that sense that it's on its way and it's going to be bad. Yeah, the weather ends up playing this very villainous sort of character. And so, you know, it's that uncontrollable element where they can't do anything. They, the rescuers, can't do anything until the rain subside to go in the cave. and even if it's raining and they've got to go in there, it just makes the conditions for the rescue even that much more challenging. And can you talk about building that tension with the, the rain coming as the boys are in the cave? The rain in Thailand, I've never been there, but from people I've spoken to and all of our Thai advisors and producers, the rain is a huge, huge deal there. Those monsoon rains are devastating. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is make sure that that was front and center with everything with the water diversion up on the mountain, because the water was flooding from all sides into the cave. So from beneath, they had the pumping going on, which turned out to not be enough until the water engineer, Tanat Nasiri, came on scene, who happened to be in Thailand, and offered up his services and goes up to the mountain with this village head guy. The head guy shows him where those sinkholes are and this brilliant, to his credit, so many brilliant people had, had so many ideas that were just born out of necessity. He was one of them, and he had the idea, we've got to divert the water from coming down into the cave because they have really no real options. They couldn't bore holes in the mountain. There were other offered solutions being offered, a tube where the boys could come out. They thought that they could teach the boys to swim and dive out. They thought that there was at one point uh, a submarine was being offered up. And of course that was impossible because all of the crevices and twists and turns, and there was just no way that that was ever gonna happen. It had to be human power that was gonna save these boys. And so the rain, you know, just building the tension was really kind of working from what was there. It was always rainy at the base camp. Just showing that, I think the audience got a sense of, okay, in the backdrop and in the forefront, the rain is always going to be an issue. One of the things that you, you and I had a chance to talk about personally a while ago was the Thai language. Like when you saw the script, did you, do you think to yourself, I don't know how to speak Thai? Listen, there's nothing really in the Thai language that directly translates to English, not even a word or two like some of the other languages that are part of English, rooted in English. Yeah. And I have to tell you, that was the thing initially that kept me up at night. 
how am I going to cut a movie where, it, as it turns out in the length of the film, the first 16 and a half minutes are in Thai? And so I began immediately, at first Post was going to be in New York. So I thought, okay, pretty big sizable uh, Thai culture there. We should be able to find someone who's in post to help out with this, even if it's a PA, no matter what that position is, a second second or whoever it is, let's find someone. I was going to use my old team from Hillbilly Elegy and the directive for them was, you got to get bring somebody on board who's Thai, who's going to help us culturally and with the language, who knows what's going on there. Well, we struck out there and eventually the film ended up in London. So now we go to London, I have a whole new post team and I'm asking the same thing of them. And they can't find anyone who speaks Thai. Now I'm worried. It's gone from concern to worry. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this is this is a huge international story. And it's one of the like most coveted stories of the Thai people. So I felt like this pressure of the entire nation of Thailand on me to go, how are you going to figure this out? And uh, how are you going to get it right? You know, I've never been to Thailand, but I sure as hell someday want to go. And I don't want my picture up at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the guy that did it, folks. Yep. That's That's the guy right there. You can stop him right now, sir. We're going to divert you to Laos. Yeah. Laos is lovely this time of year. You can go over there. So anyway, what ended up happening was once we got going and talking to my associate editor, my lead assistant, Simon Davis, who had worked previously with Ron and Dan on two other pictures. And one of the pictures that has similar characteristics and challenges was Rush, because Rush was a very internationally covered story. It was in Italian. So the idea that, okay, here's another foreign language film in large chunks of our movie. So he understood the methodology from that. And he also was brilliant in his organization of understanding the dynamics of the racetrack in Rush and the dynamics of the cave chamber geography in our movie. Mm. So he was a real asset. And he came to the table with two assistants and a VFX editor. But he didn't find me a Thai PA. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we talked it out. It was he had the same concerns, fears and challenges as I did. And and I said, so how are we going to approach this? So we we now are getting dailies in. We decided that there's going to be a phonetic breakdown of the script. I got the script, it's in English, and then there's a phonetic breakdown in Thai underneath it. So as we start getting the dailies in, but I said to him, Simon, what about ad-libs? Like, what about misspeaking on things? And so he goes, you know, you're right, let's do this. So he went through every one of the setups and he subtitled them as best and as accurately as he could. And then once I got enough material assembled, I brought in a translator. And then she began to initially listen and look at scenes and tell me how accurate I was cutting. And it's amazing, Steve, because here's what happened. After several weeks of assembling this material, your ear begins to develop a sort of tonality that you can understand in a way, even though explicitly you don't know the language, you just hear the repetition of the lines. And then you can understand that, okay, yeah, I can cut here, I can cut there, I can do the same things essentially in an English version of the movie that I can do in Thai. I didn't mess with their pacing at all. I left that alone until we got further down the road for finer cutting to go, okay, can I pull air here and there? So here's the interesting thing. So she came in and language is so tied to culture that it was really, really important because there are things like this to consider. 
So when the Thai people greet each other, Sawadi, they would say that like for hello, and they would do this thing called a Y, which is like your prayer hands, and you lean forward slightly as a greeting of respect. So if you're cutting that and you don't use the same greeting, receptive greeting, then you've actually made the person who has been said hello to and the person who's responding to it, if you don't have them have the same mirroring action, then that's rude. So there were things like that that culturally, along with the language, were tied together. So Simon went through and subtitled each one of the setups as well as the master. So if I wanted to not use the same take or in the same coverage or whatever, I could go through and then we would adjust the subtitles on screen. And she came in, she helped us a whole lot. Now here's the other complication with Thai. The boys in the culture from Northern Thailand, and that is up around Myanmar and the Laotian border. So the people who we were using to translate were from Bangkok. And apparently that dialect is so different that they can only roughly tell you what they're saying. But to really finish the film, we had to have our producers who were from up north, several cast members that were from up north. One of the cast members, the, the man who plays the father of uh, one of the boys, the birthday boy, who wore the pork pie hat, he's also a director. So he was able to help us with the language as well, on set and afterwards with the cut. But those dialects apparently are so different that you had to precisely dial that in. Mm. And then here's what people don't really realize, and neither one of us, Simon or myself, thought too much about this. Now it comes time for ADR. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the first, this is the first project I have never, ever not had my voice in. I was just talking to somebody about this. The number of times you have to do ADR for your, for, you know, for a film. Believe me, with all the work that was ahead of me, I was happy to not have to do ADR as well. So now, anyways, we have to use, because certain scenes are shifting and moving and the information's being compressed, or we need new information to, because we've cut a scene out. Like, here's an example. When we first meet the guy, Saman, who was the retired Navy SEAL, when he first arrived, initially we had a scene where Rick and John arrived at the airport. He was at work. He noticed them. He was looking at a news conference from the minister on screen. And so he saw those guys arrive. Well, we kind of cut that introduction out. We had met them at their place when the phone calls being made to see if Rick is interested in going with John to Thailand to help out because they've gotten their names have been given uh, by Vern uh, Unsworth. And so now are the three of them connected and going to Thailand. So that served as a bit of a double introduction. So we didn't use the airport scene. Now we cut to the scene where everybody is like full on in rescue mode, enter Saman. And we needed to introduce Saman in a way that said, okay, he saw what was going on. He took vacation, he's here to help. And we needed to ADR him as and identify him as a former SEAL who had worked with the captain. So I came up with a line that would help out with that. And then I just told Simon, here's what we have to do. I'm just going to take anything that the captain has said somewhere in that scene and use it just to fill mm -hmm. what we think the verbiage should be to introduce him as a Navy SEAL. It's not going to make any sense, and it's going to be offensive to the Thai people when they hear this in a screening. <laughs> Their minds are just going to flip because what he's saying means nothing. But to us, it's just placeholder for ADR. And that's how we kind of got through all of the ADR. And then we had that vetted as well because we would say things in our version of English 
that may or may not have existed in their in their language. Then there was the added challenge of this was an international story. So my team over in UK would subtitle things in their way of how they would spell it out. And I go, no, 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 we're gonna do this in the American way. Like for instance, <laughs> a word like apologize. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah, so those words instead are- Instead of a Z, right? Exactly, color exactly. With a, color with a U in there, C-O-L-O-U-R. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. And you know, words like line, they would say Q instead of, are you waiting in line? Are you queuing? That's what they would say. So there was that whole pass of sort of taking it from the British point of view into the American point of view. And even with meters and miles, we the meters we kind of left because, you know, at some point years ago, we as American <laughs> kids were told, we're switching to the metric system and we never did. I remember <laughs> that. I remember that. It's too hard. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. Oh so graphically, gosh. we represented everything in meters rather than miles. And that's just part of the Thai part of it. Because then Ron, to his brilliant credit, he was wanting more time and placement globally for what else was happening in the world. And the World Cup was the big event, mm -hmm. along with this, this being the number one news story that captured the world's attention. So we had news reporters from around the world. There were Chinese reporters as people began to show up and cover the cover the story. There's there was Japanese reporters. There's a woman who speaks in Arabic. There's English reporters on site. So all of that stuff had to be flushed out and vetted. And our sound team, our ADR and sound supervisor, Rachel Tate and Oliver Tarney, brilliant. I mean, and we were changing ADR quite a bit as the story was evolving in its late stages. And they'd have to get that stuff translated, sending the stuff material back to Thailand to, for the Northern Thai translation and then getting it back and getting it in the cut so we could see it and see if we needed it and if it was gonna work. And I told them, guys, look, we may not use all of it. We may only use some of it, but thank you for efforting 115% all the time. They were tremendous in what they uh, what they were able to come up with. There was a lot of handheld camera work. How does that affect you as an editor because you're also not just dealing with performance but almost the performance of the camera? I love it. For a story like this, I think it's so important to take the audience on a ride that is visceral. And part of the visceral nature of it is the handheld sort of instability of handheld that leans more towards documentary and less stabilized camera work that you would see in a feature where, you know, you don't want to see camera bumps or late focus pulls or anything like that. They just don't work. And so I had to carefully and meticulously decide when and where I wanted to use a focus pull like that because it just felt real. There's a scene where the parents realize now the boys are stuck in the cave. They decide to get in the car and they go to the cave. And as they're getting out of their cars and they're running, uh, there's a shot, like a side profile that the the focus is off. You know, it's, it's, it's pulling into focus, but I loved it so much because it felt so visceral and raw and totally subjective that I thought this is working. And then I also think my old, old news days I always lean on what are those moments where the camera's instability work in favor of the emotion or the story or wherever we're at. And then I think also for Ron, the decision has to be made to shoot in that style early on before I get anything. And I think, you know, he's been really, really doing some outstanding documentaries. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that influence has crept into some of his feature work as well. 
And so the decision of when and where to use it, it really depended on the scene mm. and the setup to how we used it. I thought it was quite effective because when we go into the cave with the divers, there's a camera that uh, it's on a crane and it goes oftentimes in one transition from underwater up top. And then there's cameras that the operators were at water level with the divers. And I thought there's three or four cameras here, so I can pick any setup that I want. But I, I always wanted to use a subjective approach because most people, even the divers that I talked to, have never done cave diving. They're all open water divers, but they all had this profound respect and understanding of the challenge of cave diving. Mm. And then I watched this other footage from National Geographic and other places on this thing called sump diving, which is essentially cave diving in muddy waters and conditions where your vis visibility is zero. And all you have is a guideline to hold on to. And if you lose that, you're displaced and you know you can't see anything, which we couldn't do that in the movie. We showed the degree of like visibility or else in those dive sequences, you wouldn't see anything if we truly played it true to the best. But again, the camera work, I think, the subjective nature of it and how I approached it, I think held up really well. And I think it added to the the sort of visceral nature of what those divers, just, just a small percentage of what those divers and the boys had to experience going in and out of the caves. Camera movement also affects the exact moment of a transition. Like if we're cutting this uh, interview between the two of us and you've got a still camera and I've got a still camera, we can kind of cut whenever is right but if it, they're both handheld, you have to think about, you know, when one camera's moving a little this way or up or down or compared to the outgoing shot, the incoming shot, the outgoing shot. There can be a bump sometimes there when you're going from motion and movement to something that's a little more static. And my workaround was that was I love this moment and, I, and that might be happening where we're going from a moving camera to one that's not moving as much. And I've found over the years, to always lean on what the material suggests is best. Mm -hmm. And and I'll just take in that instance, I'll take and put a little avid creep, a resize on it. So there's some motion going to some movement and you get still get some rhythm going in there. And if needed, I can even send it over to VFX for a slight bit of handheld shake. So that's for later on as we're finishing, if I know that shot's gonna thoroughly make it in to the movie. Sure. Yeah. then I'll go, okay, rhythmically, we do need something here because that's a little, it, it's it's a little distracting. You know, you, you the, the pace and the rhythm is just not not quite right. So that's how I get around that. I always go for whatever's best and then manipulate what I need to for the rhythm of that sequence. Sometimes jarring is a good thing and I just go with it. There were cuts that I made in here that normally I'm not sure other people would have made or I would have even made, but the jarring nature of it felt right. Because it's easy sometimes where we get into a certain rhythm of our own where that can lull people to sleep. And sometimes you need a bit of a percussive kind of sound or a percussive kind of cut that goes, oh, yeah, that's what those guys are feeling right there. Like there's instances in the film where we go from underwater or in the cave to up on the mountain. And I would cut to the tightest shot that I could find of the water raging towards camera and just like really have it bang in there almost like a gunshot so that it wakes you up and you feel like, oh, yes, we're back up on the mountain with this violent water that's raging down into the cave. So I would do things like that. And our, again, our sound supervisor and our mixing team, 
they got it and and they uh were totally on board with it because for a film like this that uses such restraint and ha relies so heavily on sound design and elements of sound design, the rain, the water, the tanks clanging, the scraping, the guys bumping their heads going into the caves and all these things that are rare opportunities for them in a world that the audience is most likely to never experience on their own is an opportunity of a career for them. And they embraced it and they loved it. And I was right on board with them about when and where we should try and spot music and when and where we're going to just let it go to the raw sound design. You, you alluded to it a little bit, the, the murkiness of being underwater and the fact that it's pitch black. I mean, other than a couple of spotlights in, in one of the, the chambers, chamber three, I think it was, you know, you're, you're dealing with pitch black on top of mud. Talk to me about trying to give the audience that sense of uh, geography. The geography was interesting because to Ron's credit, this was brilliant. He had the divers enter the cave right to left and the exits were always left to right. Now that's the basic idea. Of course, the, there's times where the camera is center punched and the divers are coming towards us or we're over the diver's shoulders and we're looking at POVs of stalactites or stalagmites and, the, and then we're experiencing what the divers are seeing. But the general principle was, if you're flowing with it, you can see that the divers are always entering that cave, going right to left, and they're pulling the boys out and retreat and returning themselves left to right. So that helps. Then as, as an added reinforcement of that for distance, time, and direction, we overlaid the graphics. And the red dot on the graphics shows you where the divers are, and the red lines show you where they're intending to go to. So that was very, very helpful for helping the audience understand without a scene to explain that. I thought that was really good. And then in terms of the murkiness, Steve, we shot in the tank, and it was pretty clear. Not crystal clear, but fairly clean. And we had done water tests before, and their tests were okay, but they don't really tell you anything until you get on the day and you're shooting, and then you're trying to figure out to what degree is a satisfactory amount of experiencing and objectifying what the divers experienced. And you have to figure out the balance between visually, what did the divers what were they able to see and not able to see? And what can we show the audience that best illustrates the task, the difficulty, the objective of, you know, it's really pitch black for them. And for these divers that are in these caves, it's really doubly hard because the silt kicks up every time they move. And then they can't really stand up in some of the spaces because the stalactites are right on top of their heads. And stalagmites, they, they might run into those. So it's really dangerous, dangerous stuff. So how can we convey that to the audience? So as we got the film cut, now we can start turning over to sequences for VFX to get some early looks at what's working, what level of murkiness works, where current is needed, where debris is in the water, um, where silt kicks up, just all of those things. And you don't know until you know. And then this is just an aside to that. We needed to have the divers vet that. Mm, like how much is really working for the on-screen presentation of it versus what they experienced. And so there was one particular day where finally now my cut was down to about 240, 245, maybe a little under. And Ron felt like, okay, let's bring Rick Stanton in. He's in town. Let's bring him in. 
and have him watch your cut, James. We're going to watch. It's our cut. It's Ron's cut and my cut. We're going to watch the cut. We had just come from we a spotting session around the corner in Soho with our composer. So we're walking back, and we timed it so that the end of the spotting session with the composer would basically jive with the end of the movie. And we arrived back at the cutting rooms. Sure enough, it all worked out. The door opens. We go in there. And Rick's back is to us and he stands up and there's like a frozen moment there because I'm thinking, holy shit, man, this is the guy. This is the guy. This is like a real life hero that saved 13 people, man. And so he stands up and he turns around and he has this big old grin on his face. And he didn't have to say a word after that, but he was like, Ronnie, I love it. I love it. It's great. And then he, we asked him about the degree of murkiness, the currents and everything. And he said, don't do any more. You're, you're right there. And so at that point, every note for VFX and the amount of murkiness or debris in the water or current or anything, we had a baseline for it. And of course, for the storytelling, certain sections had certain things, certain times in the, in the rescue, the currents were higher, depends on how the water was flooding into the cave, that we would adjust what we needed. But we knew, we knew though, what we presented him is our baseline for going forward. What about the intercutting between in the cave and out of the cave? Was that all as scripted or did you find you needed to break it up more or have greater amounts of in the cave and, and out of the cave? And some of it was scripted, but as we began to cut down this massively long story and get right to what we needed, we oftentimes found that whatever was between the scenes were between when we were leaving the cave and going back to the mountain, they just didn't have that urgency. With the timeline, it acted as this sort of governing agent to keep us on pace for the rescue. So if we pulled a scene and then we had a scene in the middle, we were still like, mm, you know, something is still stalling. So let's go right from the cave, right up into the mountain, because there's a one-to-one -one relationship of what's happening there. The water flooding down from the mountain is directly impacting what the efforts are going, in, going on inside the cave. And they're running out of time inside the cave because the monsoon rains are predicted to come more often and heavier and more constant. So there's a ticking clock with the rain associated pouring down. So going from the cave to the mountain, just oftentimes felt so right. But a lot of it was scripted, but I have to give Ron again the credit for, he made the mountain, the stuff he was shooting up on the mountain, he made it just as important as everything else that was going on in the cave. How did you determine jumps in time? There's times when you get to see things happen and there's times when you're like, and this is like anything in editing. I love the idea that the editor is a, is a master of time and space, right? You, you've got to decide when to cut forward. Like uh, you were explaining the, the airport, right? We don't need that scene. You know, sure, they, they arrive and of course they have to arrive, but do we need, does the audience need to see that? Talk to me about choosing those jumps in time and the holds in time that you did? It was all determined by the day, what was happening on that specific day. And so some days we could truncate, and it also had to do with really my idea of eliminating redundancy. Once we saw the divers go in and they find the boys, now we know that's possible to get to the boys. The dilemma is now how are you gonna get them out? And then secondarily, um, if we've already seen 
the way that they go into the cave. Now, um, upon the next approach, we can just see different aspects, what's different about that. So we can jump forward in time and not repeat ourselves, which has to be a key component of keeping the audience engaged in a movie like, like this. Because if you continue to see the same pathway dive going in, every time it flattens out, it gets boring, we can anticipate that there's going to be success. And that's one of the keys. We never wanted the audience to feel comfortable even after the first res rescue. So the time jumps were really driven by what was happening on that day. And ultimately, we needed to get to those last three days. You know, day 10 was important because it was the first day that they found them, the boys. But as you get to day 16, 17, and 18, where they're now bringing the boys out, you can accelerate that more and more as you get to like, the first boy and now the second boy and the third and so on and the rest of them and then by the time you get to day 18 again to ron's brilliance he was like we've got to sell the fatigue that the divers have gone through it's very exhausting the impending rain we found this bit of news from a thai report that says they're at war with the water the one of the reporters said that was a great piece of news as the guys are coming out and deciding if it's okay to go back into the cave and ultimately, Rick Stanton says, let's go, let's go. We've got no other choice because at that point, the cave was going to flood and it would have endangered them all and nobody would have made it out. So the time jumps were a little bit of compression from a long cut and eliminating redundancy, what, we, what the audience already know, now knows. And so we can cut right to what we need to tell the story. And it just intensifies it that much more. Each day should present a different challenge. You know, and through whose whose eyes the challenge happens. Initially, the challenge in the first day of the rescue is with the with the divers and the boys and the complications. They've been drugged to to to, to go out. Are they going to wake up in the middle of it? Did you give them too much? Or what happens if they don't have enough? What happens if the atropine wears off and you know they can't control the saliva that's going down their throat? Like there's all these things that I learned that are far more complicated than we were ever able to show, medically able to really illustrate. But that's why we go to hospitals and for procedures like that. You know, this was done in the wild. The setup of how complicated this rescue was to make sure that people, the audience understands how impossible this is. Talk to me about making sure that stayed whatever was in the script and how you were able to do that in editorial biggest reveal in the script. Most people, when you spoke with them, when I talked to them about what they know, because I do a lot of research on if these are biopics, I do a lot of research. I try and talk to people who have done the thing that we're doing the, st the story on. And just in general, friends, family, whomever, what do you know about the story? What people tended to remember was the boys went in the cave, they got stuck. They remember someone died and they remember or knew of how they got the boys out, that they were drugged, anesthetized and brought out that way. So I thought, okay, that is the big reveal. Ron and I agreed on that. And that was part of Ron's whole messaging of anatomy of a miracle, that it is miraculous that this medical procedure actually worked along with this crazy idea to even do it and then to bring a doctor in who would agree to it. So all of those things are really complicated. Now we cut to the actual sequence of uh, Joel Edgerton's character, Dr. Harry, trying to lighten the moment to distract the boys so he can give them the shot. And then he has to give them this, this pill for this atropine and all this stuff, which, you know, I didn't even know what atropine was, you know? And I figure out, oh, okay, it controls the saliva. So you don't choke to death 
in a in a surgical procedure where your your breathing and everything else has been altered. So I had to learn all these things. Anyway, we go and we do the thing, and there's a very detailed like shot sheet that I was given of what these beats are. Cause you know, I didn't know medically a lot of these things and some of the other procedures. So all the like tie, you know, the tie wraps on their hands and their feet and all the other things that needed to happen. And so what we initially started out was, and how I cut it initially was, it was supposed to be cross cut so we could accelerate. You show a little bit of the procedure with the first boy. Now you cut to the second boy having similar characteristics or similar procedures done on him. And then you cut back to the first, now you bring along the third and you cut back to the first and you bring along the fourth and so on and so forth. I was always worried about underwater confusions in the storytelling, because once you get these boys underwater and you see their masks and they're all Thai children with dark hair, a similar skin tone, once you got underwater, it may have been really difficult. And I tried that and I quickly abandoned it. And I said, I'm just gonna take the first boy as a tutorial, as an understanding all the way through, out of the through the procedure in the cave, out of the cave, into the second place where he's going to the hot to be placed in the, in the helicopter to be transported to the hospital. And Ron saw it and he was like, oh wow, that really works. And I explained to him why I was concerned about the potential confusion because it was so engaging. The first boy was all we needed to see to understand the degree of difficulty with getting that boy out. And so we never did the intercutting idea. One of the things that I want people to understand that this was the biggest challenge of my career. I think we pulled it off. It's been well received from Thailand to critics, to the audience. And it's got a great message of what mankind can do under the most stressful situations. And I'm just happy that it turned out so well and that despite going through like 382 hours of footage, we were able to get a damn good story out of this thing. Amen. 382 hours of footage. Holy cow. Yeah, very intimidating. But I'll say this. I loved every minute of it, even though it was super overwhelming at times. There was more footage than the day on my, my shift. But I'll tell you this, man, it ends up being like about people and how we can come together under the most adverse circumstances and really kind of like love and help one another. It just blows my mind, this whole thing that happened. It really is an amazing story. And for me, like, I'm just happy to be a part of it. Maybe the hardest part of it all for me was being in London for 10 months without my family. You know, that was that was tough. That was really tough. They came over for two months. Um, and had the best vacation of their lives. And I was happy about that. Um, didn't get to spend nearly as much time with them as I wanted to, but maybe that was the biggest part that was the most challenging for me was just being away from family and friends in America for that long. Totally understand. James, it's a pleasure talking to you again. And um, we've got to, as you said, break bread together sometime. It's always my honor to be on your podcast. I listen to the other podcast um, as well. And it's just so inspiring how you put everything together and just to hear what other editors' challenges are and the end result of what it looks like in the film and the impact that editors have in storytelling. It's, it's really great. That's it for Art of Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to aotc.borisfx.com slash art-of-the-cut, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, 
Art of the Cut, conversations with film and TV editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guest, James Wilcox, ACE. Thanks also to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. We'll be right back.